First Peter chapter 3, verse 19, it says this. And God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let's pray. Father, we just, as a church, when we think about your covenants, when we think about baptism, when we think about this church, um, it's hard to shake where we're living, the, the things that, in some sense, we're in subjection to, and, and to come out from underneath that and to realize that, that Christ is an authority over us. It's him and it's you who we ought to, to please and seek to please and, and look to obey. And I just pray that you would help us recognize that deep down inside, that's our greatest desire. And that we would be freed from the things that so easily entangle us. And we'd be able to run hard after that. In Christ's name, amen. In, in Genesis chapter 6, uh, chapter 6 through 11, there's the story of Noah's flood. And if you remember the story of, of Noah's flood, God, in some sense, is going to make an example that his creation was meant to be in relationship with him. It was meant to be uh, something where unity existed. If you look to the end where Jesus prays in John 17 and he talks about heaven, the word he uses over and over again is unity and and there's supposed to be unity, and you know that if, if something's unequally yoked, there can't be unity. If, if two different things are pulling different directions, there cannot be unity. And so God comes, and, and he basically says, my creation is, is serving a different master, going a different way, and there is no unity. That's not what the world was created for. This can't exist. So I'm going to start clean, and I'm going to demonstrate in this whole kind of a thing that, that my intention, my goal, my focus is on having a people who would know I'm their God and would be able to call me by name, having a relationship that way. And so, so God takes Noah, has him build the ark, and I think everyone's familiar with the story. Noah and his family build the ark. Um, they go into the ark, and there's a great flood. In the Hebrew, Mabul. There's a great flood, and... Noah and his family come out of the flood right above the flood in this ark that God had them create. And then when the ark finally comes to rest and they're able to come out of it, God says, listen, my, my desire is not to punish people. It's not to judge people. My desire is for reconciliation. My desire in all this is for unity. Um, never again will I do this. I'll take the burden. I'll take responsibility to make sure reconciliation happens, to make sure that my justice is, is in some sense fulfilled so that there can be tight relationship. I'll take the responsibility, and here's my sign in the sky, the sign of this promise that I'm making to you, um, this rainbow. And it's an unconditional covenantal promise from God. And it echoes an earlier promise where God covenanted that uh, to Adam and Eve after the garden that, that um, Satan would not prevail, that evil would not prevail, but that, that it would be crushed, 
and that God would take care of it and crush that. And it was an unconditional promise of what he was going to do throughout history and how that was going to play out. And so now you've got this covenant that God makes with Noah and it's unconditionally saying, I'll take the burden of responsibility to make sure that reconciliation and that unity happens. Okay? And then we fast forward and we have, we have the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant is different. It's a conditional covenant. You understand the difference there? Before God had said, I will. With Moses, he gives these laws and he says, if you will obey me, then you will receive blessing. And if you don't obey me, you will receive discipline and curses. That unity will happen either because you're submitting to me and obeying me and we can be together or in in the case of disobeying me you will be disciplined so that unity will be reestablished I will discipline you like a parent disciplines a child not because there's some kind of sadistic motive but so that on the back end of that discipline there can be reconciliation once again does that make sense and in the Mosaic Covenant we see this sense of obligation and duty to laws and to rules, and we all are familiar with that. And, and depending on where you grew up, you'd be more familiar with it or, or less familiar with it. But this sense of heaviness, that at all times there's a, a must and a responsibility, and if you mess up, that, that now there's a distance that's created between you and God, and there's this tyranny of the law. It's heavy and it's oppressive and it, and it takes joy away because your actions really dictate where you stand in relation to God. And try as you might, try as I might, we begin to realize that that's really heavy and it's really hard and we never fully master that. We never fully become perfect. We never fully have unity as the, the overarching principle of our life because of our own perfection. That we're able to, you know that um, game in, in uh, Regal, that dance, dance revolution? You know what I'm talking about? I've never set foot on it because if I did, I'd have to shoot myself. Like, it's <laughs> the most uncool thing there is. But you know, like, there's, like, you know, you have to step where it says step and then it just speeds it up eventually, you know? And, and you're like watching some mechanical people on the screen and, you know, I mean, it's really silly, but, but the law, like, we can't. It, it gets going fast enough or it requires so much of us, we just can't perfectly live up to it. And it was God showing us that this ultimate reconciliation, this ultimate unity between us and him was not something that we could bring about in and of ourselves. The Mosaic Law, in some sense, looks like a, a, a failure. But it was a part of a plan of God demonstrating that it really is this unconditional promise that he will take the responsibility, the burden to bring about reconciliation, to bring about unity, that he will take that on himself, that it's one-sided, that it's not us, that it's going to be grace, it's not going to be works. And so on the failure of this, Christ comes and he issues in the new covenant. He said, uh, 
at the end, he goes, this, this, this is a new covenant in my blood. That when I die, this is the new covenant. It's not the Mosaic covenant. It's this, this new covenant. And it's not rules anymore. And your, your relationship with God isn't based on perfection and, and dancing that dance. It's based on grace. My grace given to you. It's this awkward thing that you accept that makes you perfect in God's eyes makes you a, a son or a daughter in God's eyes. His love is established for you. Your place in his family is established. And, and it's this awkward thing, and it changes the motive of obedience now. Instead of being in this weird deal where you're always trying to live up to this law, this standard that tyrannizes you, and you never quite have this joy or this peace, your motive now is like when you get a great gift and you want to pay it back. It's, it's gratitude. It's, man, I... I couldn't earn it. I wasn't doing a good job of trying to earn it. God gave it to me. It's all I needed. It's all I ever need. And, and man, the benefits that are, of it are so great. I'm free. I don't, I don't have this guilt. I don't have this fear anymore. Perfect love casts out fear. And God's love for us, his grace for us, that perfect love, just completely given to us what we do not deserve, sacrificially given to us, it casts out our fear and it's this awkward thing. Grace is the most awkward thing. I learned that in seminary, man. I would, every now and then, I'd just screw up. You know, and most sins are private. Do you know that? I mean, most real big sins are private sins. And you know you screwed up. No one else knows you screwed up. And you just carry it around. And then I would be like, man, okay, I'm ready to get past this sin. So I'm going to beat my chest, <clears throat> prove to God how serious I am this time, and kind of be all, like, hard in the face and... Uh, I have a friend who, like, I saw this message that she put on Twitter last night about going out with her husband, and he ordered a, a Sprite and whiskey, and the the, the waitress bought, brought it, and he took a sip of it and made that face like, wow, you know? And then, like, a minute later, she brought the whiskey. <laughs> it was just the Sprite. <laughs> it's literally one of the funniest things I've heard in a long time. Um, And, uh, you know, we do that. I'm going to make this face about how contorted I need to become to prove to God how serious I am, to, to make myself feel big and proud and strong that, that I'm putting this sin behind me and moving forward. And, and the whole thing is a complete misunderstanding of grace. And when I realized that, it was like, broke me down because it feels so awkward realizing that in the minute you understand your sin, you don't have to contort your face. There's nothing in the drink. You just need to realize how awkward it is and freeing it is and that you don't want to sin anymore. You don't, you realize how silly sin is. It's this weird thing you chase after that when you really look at all of it, you realize, I didn't really want that. I, I want peace of mind and joy and, and wow, it, it, grace is awkward. The Mosaic law showed us that the contorted face was not how we were going to be reconciled and made perfect and united with God. God was going to do it himself like he always covenanted that he would. 
He made a covenantal promise, unconditional covenantal promise, and he fulfilled it. And that promise is for us, all of us. Covenants between God and his people were always a community thing. God's people were always a covenantal people. God loves family. And so he wants to pull everyone together and say, listen to this good news together, this promise I'm making for all of you that you all get to share in. Isn't this great, good joy that we're all together in? Now, why, why does that sound like a big deal? It sounds like a big deal because we absolutely don't understand the community nature, the people nature of God's covenants with us. We are so individualistic in our paradigm with which we approach life that we misunderstand God's covenants and we see all of them as just this little deal between God and us that has no connection to anything outside of our own private selves. And by misunderstanding that, we misunderstand the nature of God's covenants. It changes the whole dynamic Someone um, uh, actually was over at Aaron's house yesterday with the family. We brought her a housewarming gift, and my one-and-a-half-year-old was playing with her iPod and knew how to, like, hit the buttons and stuff. And she looked at it, and she goes, man, isn't that crazy? Like, that generation is going to grow up with iPod touches and iPhones. That's all they're going to ever know. And I thought about that, and I was just like, wow. I mean, the, the paradigm that goes on there, like, I mean, I'm, I'm, people older than me probably have like, yeah, just think of what the TV did. You know, I mean, I grew up with the TV, but there was no cell phones. And I mean, it, there's a whole reality that gets changed when you have a certain paradigm. Does that make sense? You see the world through those glasses. That's, that's just how you see the world. And you interpret the Bible and interpret God through those glasses unless you take the glasses off and can actually critique or analyze those glasses. And it's amazing what paradigms do. And what we have to understand is we live in a culture that has shifted its paradigms a couple times. Andrew Del Banco, um, in, in a book called The Real American Dream, he's a, a historian and sociologist. He kind of chronicles this. And it's absolutely fascinating how the organizing principle of America, the thing that, that everybody kind of organized around that gave them identity uh, initially was God, whether it was deistic um, or like a Christian theism, regardless, the organizing principle was God in community. And he chronicles that and shows how up until the time of a little bit after the Civil War, certainly around the 1900s, when America became really imperialistic, and no one knows that we used to have colonies like the Philippines and things like that. And we think, think of France and England and Belgium and stuff, Germany as having these colonies and being, you know, imperialistic and what they did with India and all that. We don't realize that we had our own colonies. Um, but we were kind of in that game. And, and uh, the, the whole idea of evolution had come about right after the Civil War. Darwin's book, um, written in 1859, after the Civil War, came, you know, kind of to America, began to challenge the idea of God, the idea of creation, and as that kind of ran its course up until the, you know, the Teddy Roosevelt years, um, really what became at that point 
the organizing principle for America was nation, manifest destiny, the expansion into the West, the idea of the greatness of this land and of this country. And certainly when you hit the, the Great War and then World War II, the driving organizing principle in society was duty to nation, to country. We were proud to be Americans and that thing, we, we all wa- wanted to serve America. I can't even say we because I grew up after that era. But my grandparents... They grew up with a sense of duty and a sense of obligation and a sense of um, civic virtue. And the organizing principle was, was really that this country, this flag, was this amazing point. And Del Banco chronicles how from the turn of the century up until the Vietnam War in the 70s. Uh, and the idea of duty to country, of of the idea of, of the nation being this organizing principle. And frankly, Watergate had a big, had a big hand in this whole thing and, and stripping us of our illusions of the grandeur of, of governmental offices and the executive branch and things like that. But throughout that whole process, a whole generation came and said, um, I, that's silly. I don't want to submit myself to country. I don't want to take on that duty. So what then becomes the organizing principle for American culture. It started with God, which was external and out there. That was replaced by something similar, something we could kind of, in some sense, worship or revere, which was nation, this idea of America. Okay? When that idea crumbled, there was nothing external to replace it with anymore. What replaced it was the idea of the self, I've grown up, and I understand it very acutely, how the driving principle of my generation is self. It absolutely, fundamentally, is self. And I, for the life of me, cannot rid, rid uh, all of, I can't, I can't get all of that out of me. I mean, I'm just so steeped in it. I mean, I can see it so clearly, but it's like, it's just, sticks to my bones. And if you're my generation, you know what I'm talking about. I remember being, um, I was an RA the year after I got saved. It was really awkward, man. I was in the fraternity, lost all my friends, and I just had nothing to do. Lost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of friends, and Thursday nights, Friday nights, Saturday nights would just sit and read. Um, never read anything other than Sports Illustrated until I turned 22. Nothing. I mean, I was the guy that, that read over someone else's shoulder what the cliff notes said and then would just make stuff up on the quizzes and do okay. Uh, and then I just, all I did was read. You know, 10 hours a day. I just read, read. I had no friends. Man, I'd lost them all. Um, and so I was meeting one time with this, I was, I was an RA and I was meeting with the RD. He was so frustrated that all the fraternity RAs completely disregarded him, completely disregarded all the rules, all the principles, and he, he just couldn't get them to do what they were supposed to do, and he was just so bothered by this. And I just was eating, you know, at lunch, and I just laughed at him. I said, you're really silly, you know, and he goes, what do you mean I'm silly? I'm like, look, you don't understand. Like, you're expecting them to do something that they have absolutely no reason to do. He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, well, look, what's your worldview and their worldview? That there is no God, that evolution is true, 
that virtue is just a made-up thing that you can convention you can either accept or not accept, and that really the only thing you need to serve is yourself. It's survival of the fittest. It's do what you can to get by, um, and that self really is ultimately the driving principle. And I was like, so when they don't do what you want them to do, they just find ways to skirt around it or get by or make do, but they don't have any sense of duty to the job or, or their commitments. It's like, why would that surprise you? I mean, why would it be foolish to do anything else, really? And this guy's, I mean, his face just went flush and, and he, he just couldn't argue out of it. Like, he's, man, I never really saw it that way. I was like, you want him to do those things because of duty to the RA-ship or duty to virtue? I was like, no. You want him to do those things so that your life will be easier. You're committed to the same principle they are. And you're just whining like a baby because they're, they're making your life difficult. <laughs> like, but you have no worldview to expect anything different from them. You know, this worldview thing is just huge. And we've built the whole Christian movement around self. This whole Christian self-help movement, man. Everyone's radically concerned about themselves. And instead of going to church, they'd rather go to Barnes & Noble and find self-help books. Well, shoot, we're not going to be beat by the self-help books. We'll come up with our own version of Christian self-help. And instead of teaching truth, we'll give you little nuggets to help yourself. And we're never going to challenge that idol. We're just going to, like, give you what you want that way. And you're going to build big churches for us and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And we've built a whole Christian movement. I mean, forgive me, but there's a guy in a crystal cathedral in California that, that said in the 70s, 70s, early 80s, like that the Reformation um, of the 1500s, that the wrong thing was that it was, it was too God-centered. And, and this man went on to say, what we need is a man-centered revolution, or reformation. I mean, <laughs> crazy, crazy stuff. So we, we drank the Kool-Aid, and, and the Christian church kind of is like, we're just going to build around this because it's pragmatic, it works. So when we come to the covenants of God that were not made specifically to you, but were made to God's people Made to God's people in such a way that you have to, they were made to family. So you you get Uncle Eddie and and cousin whatever with the covenants. It says in Peter that God is building this spiritual household and Jesus is the cornerstone. He's building you like bricks. Well, you know what? Ah, God, I really don't want to be locked down that much. It's kind of constrictive. I don't, I don't, I want to be a free agent like LeBron. <laughs> like, don't, don't, don't tie me into a contract. Don't tie me down with other people. I want to stay on the edges where I can roam and, and come and go as I please. And, um, you know, you can always tell the extroverts because they want to stand against the wall back there. There's none there right now. Don't bother looking. But they usually are back there. And... They, they want to, like, keep it all in front of them, but they're distant enough that they can kind of, like, you know, they're free to move about the cabin. I'm not too committed, you know. Or you see, like, a job going on, and I know you guys do this. I've never done it. But you see a job going on, it's kind of like, ah, dirty job. And you look around, you're like, you know what? There's more people here than that job requires. So if I just look distracted, by the time I look back, it's, ah, you know, like, there's, you already got enough help. 
I would have helped. I was busy talking, ministering to this person here. Um, We do that in church. We come and we sit and we, we hang out just enough on the edges. Ah, you know, nursery's got all the volunteers. Shoot, I was just about to volunteer. You know, like um, somebody else is going to pay the bills, even though we have to do rent, even though we have to, you know, like nothing's free. You know, I, I can go pay 50 bucks going and seeing a movie in 3D. But, you know, I mean, it's church. You know, they want me to come. I'm doing them a favor by coming. And then they pass this offering bucket. It makes me feel guilty. I, I should probably drop them a note that it'd be better if they just had the buckets in the back where I felt less awkward walking by it because I don't like the way that makes me feel. But they should be glad that I'm coming. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, it's a parody. I'm not really saying you have to give money. I mean, you know what I'm saying? But, but we know we play those games. It's like we know what we like, what our appetite is, our tastes, our tastes. We know, we know what they are. And we lead out with those. And um, McDonald's and Walmart have taught us that if we wait long enough, somebody is going to work really hard to give it to us our way, including churches, including friends, including spouses. Like we, we really have a hard time growing becoming mature enough to rise out of that paradigm. So it's a really interesting thing because it affects our ability to really have a tight-knit church. And here's the irony. Just a little side note. The irony about that is that at the same time we're always giving self what self wants, we really also know that self isn't getting what it really wants. The minute we're trampling on virtue because it really gratifies self, we know deep down that when I really wish I was that guy in the movies that really was honest, that really never lied, and actually never gossiped and always stuck up for his friends. That's what I really want. But so the funny thing is, is in giving myself what I want, I'm actually not getting what I really want. You know, we come to church and we're like, man, I'm going to let other people do the heavy lifting. I'm getting what I want. But but then we kind of drive around. We're like, man, I really am missing. I I really want to be a part of a tribe. I I really want ownership. I really wish it could be, in some sense, my church and my family. And so in giving ourselves what what we want, we're really robbing ourselves of what we really want. You know, God, you made this covenant with me. Um, You follow me around everywhere. Uh, Make yourself useful. Don't just follow me around, you know. I mean, do something, God. Make yourself useful. We, We treat God as the genie in the bottle, as being under our control because it feels good being able to boss God around and make him responsible for our problems. But we really know deep down at the same time that we're giving ourselves what we want, um, it's not really what we want. We really want God to be big 
and to be our father and to know that we can tuck ourselves up under his wing. You know, that's the imagery in the Psalms and a lot of the prophets is this imagery of a wing and, and its safety and security and peace. We really want that. The minute we say no to missions, I'm not going to go to a third world. I might get some kind of disease, parasite. You know, the funny thing is I actually feel that way. That's why, like, I fasted one time when I was in Uganda, like, for four days just on water. Like, I'm sorry, I can't eat that food. It's water only from a bottle. You know, like, I, mean, I get that. Like, I don't want to come back with anything creepy. Um, we, there's that tug of war, you know, and oh, I'm not going to go to a third world. It's not safe. Or it might cost a lot of money. Or what if God somehow speaks to me and I have to take the cotton out of my ears and he actually says, I want you to go back for longer than a week or two where it's more like a vacation, you know. Um, we kind of push God away and we know that we're protecting ourselves. I'm getting what I want. Safety from God. Sovereignty for myself. I'm kind of getting what I want, but at the same time, we know that when we're praying, God, show me what your will is. Should I take this job or that job? Should I move here or there? We know that he's not going to answer us. We, we pray anyways, maybe just kind of hoping, but we kind of deep down know that God stopped answering our prayers long ago because we, why would he? We're not going to do what he says anyways. So we're getting what we want, but we really know deep down in our gut that we're not getting what we want. We have to understand that spirituality coming through this paradigm of self looks a lot like mysticism. It's just me and God and my emotions and my feelings. And there is, in, our, in my own little box, and there's no social or communal obligation and so church really is a creepy place with some weird people that are always trying to get something from me, like pull me in. And I, man, I have to fight hard to like stay autonomous and, and not become a part of it. And it's, you know, church is a weird thing. Baptism, which we're doing next week, that's ah, for kids that don't know how awkward it is. They actually think it's cool because their parents want them to do it. But me, I'm an adult. People might see me. That's not good. I have an image to uphold. It's kind of icky, ooey, gooey, awkward baptism. It's really submission-ish, an awkward feeling. So I don't need to do that. I'm not going to do that. Um, or if I do, I might just go to a private river and hide and baptize myself real quick, you know? <laughs> Here's the thing about baptism. It is for you if you're an adult. It's the handle for what God is doing through Christ where he says, I am taking responsibility to give you grace, to save you. And it said in 1 Peter, baptism is that symbol. All of these covenants, the Noahic, I think that's right, even though it sounds funny, but the Noahic covenant was God doing it. It's his grace. And the handle is this sign. It's, it's the rainbow. And Jesus is coming and he's saying, man, um, 
I'm the new covenant, I'm doing it. And how you're gonna be a part of that um, is me calling you into this uh, and you realizing that's what's going on and the handle for this, the symbol, the sign is, is baptism. Do you think it was any less awkward in Jesus' time? You know, the Pharisees were standing on the, the riverbanks angry with John the Baptist, trying to figure out how they can get him out of their town and out of their hair. And people are going in and being baptized. You don't think those people were like, man, there's people watching. The leaders of the town are watching. You don't think that was awkward? It's awkward then. It's awkward between now and then. It's awkward now. That's cool. That's okay. It's okay because God is bigger than self. Therefore, doing some things that feel awkward to self ultimately are going to give self what it really wants, a clear conscience and and a certain kind of relationship with God. God is bigger than self. And so when God asks us to do something, we realize that is a bigger deal and should command my, my respect, my desires, my actions more than my fears, perfect love casts out fear, my fears of my friends or community or society or this, you know, the, the infantile part of my gut. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have to feel a certain way. And we're not always in control of our feelings. It means that we master those feelings, those emotions, and we say, God's bigger than that. I'm going to choose God. And you know, the amazing thing is we all when we go to pray, want to know God's will for our life. I mean, everyone I know that prays is somehow seeking out knowledge, divine knowledge, divine wisdom. God, direct my steps, man. It's confusing. I look at the future and it's it's just chaotic. It's a mess. Direct my steps. Like, I want to know where to go. Give me some insight. And, And God, I think most of the time is saying, there's some pretty clear tracks in the sand. You're in the middle of a desert you're scared to death because it's the desert. You don't have much water. You don't know where to go. And he's going, look, look behind you. There's some clear tracks in the sand that show you there's a road. There's a way to go. They're the things I've asked you to do. Like get baptized. Join a church. Take the gifts I've given you, the experiences I've given you, the resources I've given you, and contribute. Don't be a consumer, like with Walmart. Don't be a consumer in church, but to actually contribute to church. Like I, I've, I've given you those gifts to use. They're not just wonderful tools to make yourself happier or bring yourself more pleasure. Man, they're, they're given to you with a calling. Like there's some tracks. They're, they're, they're just covenantal things that God has done with his people And he's saying, this is how you get started. And you start down these tracks, and guess what? I will walk with you if you're doing what I've asked, and then I'll begin to steer you in the little things. So most of these prayers we ask God, like, I think God's just like, man, let's start at square one. Square one is you die to self, you submit to me, you let me be sovereign, you start following the things I've asked you to do, And then I'll begin to lead you. That's what's so amazing about baptism. Paul in Romans says baptism literally is a symbol of 
you dying. It's like you're being buried in the grave. Sovereignty dies. Self dies. And then it's raised back up with grace, what God did himself through Jesus. You're raised back up into that covenant. And you no longer belong to yourself. You're a new self that is knitted together in what God is doing, his plan, his communal plan. Unity, reconciliation. You're knitted together into that. And everything is different. The starting points are different. The questions are different. Everything should be reevaluated at that point. We say, God, here it is, man. You got it all. What do you want from me? Or God, man, this is really tough, but you got to get me started here. I'll give you all I can do. Take that little and multiply it. Guess what? He will. Self, though, has to die. That's why we did a whole series called Give Your Life Away. If you give your life away, Jesus says, then you will find it. But if you seek your life, you will lose it. The cheap stuff always takes away from you what you really want, the deep stuff in your gut. It's an amazing thing, this word for great storm in um, Genesis, this Hebrew word, Mabul, great flood. It's only used one other time in Scripture. In Psalm Psalm 29. It says this. In Psalm 29, you've got to remember these are songs. These are songs written to be sung as prayer to God out of a life context that's just as messy as ours. And this psalmist writes and he goes on. He's talking about the power and the strength of God. And he, he, his voice breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And, and he goes and he says this in verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the Mabul, over the flood, over the great flood. It's the only other time in Scripture this word is used. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. That's a great picture of two halves. Man, you came in this morning and your flood might be pornography. It might be an eating disorder. It might be your personal finances. It might just be depression or loneliness or whatever it is. And it owns you. You're tossed all over the place. You have no control over what your flood is. And the idea here is that the Lord sits enthroned on power, sovereign, over the flood, over your flood. And he's reaching down and saying, I am your redeemer. I am your savior. I want to reconcile you to me. I want to to rescue you. Would you just call on my name? Would you just turn it over to me? Would you just let me have sovereignty and control and stop listening to self, stop following self, stop filling yourself with cotton candy? Because my covenants aim to give you strength. I want to give strength. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Psalm 40, which is one of my, uh, one of my favorite psalms, says this. Psalmist writes, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. 
he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. It's this picture of God sitting enthroned above your storm, your pit, and he's reaching down. He's not a distant God, deistic. He's not a God somehow wrapped up with nature, monistic in some sense. He's a personal God that makes covenants and promises. He's a relational God, and he's, he's sitting there on the edge above the fray, reaching down and saying, would you trust me? Would you let me heal you? Would you look around and realize how much bigger I am than the other things? See and fear and put your trust in me and let me put your feet up on a rock. When you go to baptism or to commit to a church or to do ministry or to go to missions or to publicly look like a Christian or to give your life away, Would you realize that the little fears that you have of what is this going to do to my bottom line or to my popularity or to my image or to those 100 Facebook fans or or friends that I have from high school that are going to think whatever I do here is awkward. I got to be more protected than that. I got to think smart about how people are going to interpret my life and my actions. I I can't be all in, God. You ask for too much. You ask for all of me. That's too much. I need a little bit of wiggle room here to control things, to keep myself safe. And God is saying, man, I, I, not your friends, not what society can do, not safety, not security, not money. They don't sit enthroned above the storm. Only I do. Many will see in fear. The band's about to come up and they're going to lead us in special music and we're going to take uh, an offering. You can put, like if you're a visitor, put your name on a connection card. Let us know you're here. But we, we really need to wrestle with, by the way, if you want to be baptized, if you're an adult that's crazy enough to get baptized publicly because you want to grab handle of that covenant that God has made that includes you to bring you into his covenant people, Um, Just write baptism on your connection card and we'll send you an email, explain more to you about it, answer your questions. But if you're you're that crazy, sold out, or or just desperate enough to grab hold of God's hand and say, I'm going to take some steps of obedience, just write baptism on that card. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Amen.